Listener Production. In this episode of The Briefing, Hamish McDonald. He's a journalist you might have seen on The Project or the ABC, and he's been investigating some of the world's most intriguing leaders, including the 37-year-old accidental Prime Minister of Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman. He was never meant to be the guy in charge of Saudi Arabia. In fact, his father wasn't even meant to be. It was only Mm. through some unexpected sequence of deaths that his father, King Salman, Mm. became the king. So with Hamish McDonald, we'll learn more about MBS, the accidental leader in Saudi Arabia, plus all the other fascinating leaders who are shaping our world. Hamish McDonald, right after today's headlines with Antoinette Latouf. It's Wednesday, February the 1st. Paid domestic violence leave is coming into force across Australia today. No one should have to choose between being able to pay their bills and doing what they need to do to stay safe. People might use that leave for things like going to court to get a court order, making a statement to police. That's CEO of Safe Steps Family Violence Response Centre, Chelsea Tobin. So all workers, including casuals who are struggling with violence from a partner, an ex or close relative, will be able to access 10 days off work per year as part of the new initiative from the federal government. One in six women have experienced physical or sexual violence from a current or former partner, according to the ABS, and for men, that figure is one in 16. Yeah, this is a great move, and I think Chelsea Tobin summed it up there that one of the biggest barriers to um, women mostly, but also men, to leave violent situations is the the financial barriers. Um, A lot of these things you need to do in these situations take a lot of time, going to police, courts, moving house, medical Mm. appointments, traveling to get away. So knowing that you're not losing money as you're doing that is going to help people get away from violent situations. Absolutely. This is, you know, one important step. And for example, last December, in three weeks, 11 women were killed at the hands of a current or former Mm. partner. So this is an enormous issue that requires lots of policy and funding response. So there's been a massive blow up over poker machines in New South Wales. So the boss of Clubs New South Wales, which is the club's industry body, has been sacked over his comments about the state's Premier Dominic Perrottet. Uh, He told nine newspapers that Perrottet's conservative Catholic gut is what was driving his reform. It is incredibly inappropriate um, and offensive to people of faith right across New South Wales in respect to the comments um, that he made today. Yeah, so Josh Landis apologised for the comments yesterday, but it wasn't enough. Soon afterwards, he was sacked. And so what's going on here is that the Liberal government in New South Wales is planning to bring in cashless gambling cards with a spending limit of 1000 to $1,500 a day, which is a huge limit. It's still a huge oh. amount of money to gamble per day. But even that is so controversial because New South Wales is the pokies capital of the world. There's a lot of vested interests here and they fight dirty, as you can see. Um, Not just these sort of comments, which have gone a step too far, but this is what brought out this Nazi costume from Dominic Perrottet's 21st, days before he was forced to admit that. It was a minister in his own cabinet who was against these reforms who made the phone call saying, hey, mate, the rumours are getting around about the Nazi uniform. Well, Clubs New South Wales are, uh, you know, to put it colloquially, packing it because their revenue model is under threat. I mean, 365 days a year, you can still theoretically spend $1,000 on the pokies a day Mm. per person. That's still an enormous amount of money, which goes to show just how much is being spent. And for some context, New South Wales has 30% of the world's poker machines just in New South Wales. 
And so this is a watershed moment. Finally, we have a politician who's really willing to stick up and stick it to the pokies industry. Uh, They don't like it. They'll fight dirty. And now their CEO's gone. Yeah, and they're showing up the Labor Party who don't have the guts to step up and make this reform. Um, The other state that's doing this is Tasmania, but their spending limit is going to be $100 a day, which I think sounds more reasonable. I think the other element to this story is that it shows in Australia attacking someone on their faith does not go down well at all. Yeah, look, and generally there's there's not as much sympathy if it is a dominant and majority faith because, I mean, the, uh, the, the Premier said, oh, if you said this about Hindus or Jews or Muslims, mm. it, it wouldn't go down well. Generally, going after Christians is... Is not, game. is not such an offensive thing in our culture because it, mm. it historically is a more dominant religion. But it goes to show that it just doesn't go down at all, attacking someone on the basis of their faith. Especially in an issue that isn't faith-based and when gambling really is like a, like a cancer on our society. There's more hope for Australian producers with news. Our trade minister has locked in a virtual meeting with his China counterpart next week. So Don Farrell will be working to mend the relationship and end the country's trade sanctions on Australian products. Yeah, so this has been going on since we had the change of government last year. This slow, gradual thawing in the relationship with China. They've been freezing out about $20 billion of our exports, beef, barley, coal, lobsters, wine, timber, a number of products. We had Penny Wong go over and meet. We've had Albo meeting the Chinese president on the sidelines of a summit in Indonesia. Mm-hmm. Now the trade ministers are meeting. I mean, it's a virtual one, but he's hoping that this will lead to an in-person meeting next. Um, but yeah, it does appear to be an important step in the in the thawing of um, that relationship. And no doubt uh, local producers have got their fingers and toes crossed. And the first flight from the new Aussie airline Bonza has taken off from its Sunshine Coast base flying passengers to the Sundays coast. So this independent airline is the first to launch in Australia in 15 years. Um, it prides itself on being low budget and ultra Aussie. The thing However. Is that it's backed by an American uh, investment firm. So I don't know how Aussie it is. They've certainly got the name right in terms mm. of making it very Aussie. They're also going to focus on um, very regional destinations, Cairns, Rockhampton, Mildura, They will fly to Melbourne soon, but saying Sydney is too expensive because the airport is owned by Macquarie Bank. Anyway, it's always been tough for a third airline to survive in Australia. Um, We might all remember Tiger. There have been others that have gone by the wayside over the years. So hopefully they can get the business model right. Tickets are starting at $49. And the only way to purchase the ticket um, is to go through either the app or a travel agent. Um, and just to get an idea of the cost, a one-way ticket starts at just $49 um, with some of those longer regional flights costing up to $79. New South Wales police are attempting to block a protest outside Cardinal George Pell's funeral tomorrow. An LGBTQI plus group has organised a march outside of St Mary's Cathedral, but it's actually across the road in Hyde Park uh, with over 400 activists responding to the Facebook event. Um, But officers say they'll apply to the New South Wales Supreme Court to stop the march over safety concerns. Um, Members of the group have hit back saying police can't deny them the right to protest. Yeah, so I think, look... It's a tricky one. If it was right outside the doors of St. Mary's Cathedral, it would be almost like the Westboro Baptist Church protesting the funerals of soldiers in America, but the other way around, politically speaking. 
but they are planning to protest across the road. So it'll be really interesting to see what the Supreme Court decides here. I also want to know what exactly these safety concerns are. Are any of these members, do they have police records? Do they Are they known to be violent people? I mean, I just think throwing out that there are safety concerns um, without much evidence is, I don't know, I'm a little bit dubious about it. Well, it's that versus the right to protest. These are the things that get balanced in these situations and this is why we have courts to make, mm. I guess the right decision on, on these complex interests um, across our society. And I think to your point, just generally um, where protests have been deemed inappropriate um, based on proximity, whether it's um, people uh, protesting outside of abortion clinics or protesting mm. outside of other state funerals, um, you know, usually a bit of distance, you know, don't be right at the doorstep, a bit of distance is, um, is a way to make both parties happy. All right, we'll catch you again soon, Antoinette. Hamish McDonald is about to join me. So Hamish McDonald is the regular host of The Project and before that he had nearly two decades of experience reporting all over the world. So before coming home to Australia, he worked as a correspondent for Al Jazeera and he also worked for the American ABC, which means he's got a really deep knowledge of world affairs and geopolitics. He's travelled to all corners of the world and he's just started releasing a new podcast series called Take Me to Your Leader. And it gives the backstories to eight of the world's most intriguing leaders. Hamish, thank you for joining us on The Briefing. Great to see you, Tom. So when I heard that you were doing this series about world leaders, my first thought was, this is, this is Hamish pining for his days as an international <laughs> news correspondent. So a lot of people will have come across you more recently, you know, on TV for The Project or hosting Q&A. But the first phase of your career was really out on the road all over the world. Yeah, it was for a long time. Too long, probably. Um, <laughs> Jaded. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, I definitely think that kind of work has a lifespan um, because you you get pretty flogged. Mm. I mean, they kind of call it helicopter or parachute journalism. Mm. Um, like I was based in KL in Malaysia, but covering all of Asia for, for probably three years. And I was based in London, but covering the Middle East and Afghanistan for Al Jazeera and then I did the same thing for ABC America and you kind of fly in and fly out. So give us a snapshot of of that life at its most intense. There was a period with Al Jazeera where I was based in London and I was in and out of Afghanistan doing big long rotations so you'd go in for two, three months at a time. Wow. And that was incredibly intense because it was during, you know, heavy fighting during the the conflict in Afghanistan. Mm. And Al Jazeera had a particular way of telling that story. They didn't have big international security details like the American networks did. You worked with an Afghan crew by and large and you lived in a or you worked in a compound with the Al Jazeera Arabic team. You just drove around Afghanistan in like a beat-up old Toyota Camry. You know, I was in Russia one week. I'd be in Nigeria the next when Mm. the schoolgirls in Chibok went missing and then sent to Gaza because, you know, there was another Israeli um, assault on on the Gaza Strip or maybe sent into Iraq because ISIS was taking territory. That's so, such an intense series of events to go and and witness and I guess connect with people over. And I think people listening now will hear that these kind of stories do light you up. And in contrast to the sort of work you're doing more recently where you're having to say on the project pivot from an interview with The Bachelor to maybe interviewing the Prime Minister, 
it's so different. But this podcast series is, I guess, taking you you back out into the world and at least in your interviews and these conversations you're having with all these fascinating people, connect with these global players and the the dynamics that form around them. Yeah, I think with unquestionably, you know, I, I feel passionately about the world and Australia's place in mm. the world. So, you know, I definitely think that we are living through a time where the world is sort of changing more rapidly around us than what it has at other times in my life. And mm. I certainly think in Australia, you know, you'll be familiar with this, Tom, you know, there's been times where we've been really sceptical about telling stories about the world. Mm. And we've often asked the question, like, why Why would an Australian care about this? Yeah. But I think we all know that actually these world leaders do shape our lives here in Australia today. And so I guess that was how we ended up coming to this series we're not as removed as we once thought we were. So let's get into this series. So it's called Take Me to Your Leader. And of course, you're talking about the the big leaders that we talk about a lot already, um, Xi Jinping, but, you know, finding interesting parts of their story. Vladimir Putin, obviously, is having a big impact on our lives at the moment, unfortunately. But I'm really interested in the other leaders that we know less about. So Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia and Georgia Maloney in, in Italy. So let's talk first about the Saudi Crown Prince and Prime Minister of Saudi Arabia. He's the seventh son of his father. So I imagine there was a bit of a power struggle with his brothers to get to where he is. So how did he come out on top? So, you know, he was never meant to be the guy in charge of Saudi Arabia. In fact, his father wasn't even meant to be. It was only Mm. through some unexpected sequence of deaths that his father, King Salman, Mm. became the king. And as one of the people that we talked to in this series puts it, you know, Traditionally, Saudi Arabia has been tribal. There has been a degree of kind of warlordism about the way it's run and the way its Mm. politics has been played. And what better way to demonstrate your warlord bona fides than to launch an actual war? And that's exactly what he did. He launches this war in Yemen, which is brutal. Not only does he do that, he does something which to this day I think is kind of shocking when you read it and talk Mm. about it. He rounds up most of the royal family and puts them under house arrest in prison, effectively, in the (laughs) Ritz-Carlton. And he says to the public, this is an anti-corruption drive. My family has been stealing money from you. There are billions of dollars that are the Saudi people's money and we want to send a message and we want to get that money back. And he basically puts them there until they pay the money back or at least a portion of the money back And he wins favour with the population. And by the way, he's 37, this guy. Yeah. It's interesting, right? When you talk to people about him that know him, as we do in the series and have worked with him, dealt with him, interviewed him, you know, there's some descriptions of him as being very clever and Mm. very ambitious. And he has Mm. these kind of big ideas about letting women drive and, you know, having hip hop concerts. Yeah, that's right. He he looks sort of progressive on some levels, but then he looks really hardcore on others. So it's hard to know what to make of him. And actually, one of the people in the, in the podcast that, that has dealt with him says that actually of all the leaders, you know, in recent years of Saudi Arabia, he's sort of the most Saudi. He's not, you know, Western educated. Mm. He has these like strong Saudi cultural ideas, but at the same time, he's taking steps to liberalize. And it's, I think it's important to understand that Saudi has a really young population mm. comparatively. And so a lot of the measures that he's taken speaks to them. But it's also screwing us on oil prices. He's linked to the killing of 
um, Jamal Khashoggi. Yeah. Like there's some really bad stuff, as you said, launched the war in Yemen. So do you think, let's say over the next one to five years, he will have a net positive or net negative impact on the world? Look, I think it will be hard for him to ever walk away from what happened to Jamal Khashoggi, the journalist that was mm. dismembered inside a Saudi consulate Brutal. in yeah. Turkey. I think that mark against his name will, will be there forever. I think it's impossible to sort of crystal ball whether it's a net positive in the future, but certainly um, his position seems more reassured than it was. I think the international condemnation over the Khashoggi killing has quietened mm. clearly. And I think the West will do business with him. You know, when they're faced with a war in Ukraine conducted by Putin that's not going to end quickly, mm. uh, they will, you know, the international community can and will make judgments about who they're willing to work with. And I think they will work with him. All right, let's move on to another relatively young, um, mid-40s, also very new and controversial world leader. That's the Prime Minister of Italy, Georgia Maloney. First ever female prime minister in Italy. She leads a party called the Brothers of Italy, which is a right-wing party also described as neo-fascist. What's the most surprising thing you've learned about her backstory? So Georgia Maloney grew up in Rome, in the suburbs of Rome, and basically was out on the streets protesting from a really early age. So she had this kind of complicated family life. Her father left uh, when she was very young she seemed to have a fair amount of anger and resentment about that in her teenage years, but was out there with far-right groups in her early teens. So this is not someone that has kind of gone on an ideological journey and explored the spectrum. This mm. is someone that clearly has um, sat with a set of ideas for, for the bulk of her life. And moved to more extreme, to more moderate <clears throat> sort of ends of that spectrum? Perhaps. I, I think... She certainly today says that uh, she's not a fascist. Mm. She certainly today says less favourable things about Italy's fascist past and about Mussolini. But it's clear that she does take some inspiration from him and some of the ideas that he espoused and some of the things that he did. I think what makes her story and her rise fascinating and you know, valuable for us to understand is that, you know, we talk a lot about the rise of the far right. We talk mm. a lot about the populist right, the possible return of fascism. And I think like all of these leaders that pop up from time to time, whether it's Viktor Orban mm. or whether it's Trump or whether it's Brexit and Nigel Farage and whether those things are in any way connected or not, mm. is that they each become a sort of litmus test for how far we're moving or how, what we're willing as a society to accept or embrace. Yeah. Georgia Maloney is the one that has broken through, that has taken this idea, has started her own party, uh, Fratelli d'Italia, and built it very rapidly into the party of power. Now, it's in coalition with other mm. parties. Which uh, will be a moderating force? Or well, not? I mean, if you call Silvio Berlusconi a moderating force. Not that particular <laughs> coalition partner. <laughs> um, but I think what for me, and certainly what we explore in the, in the series, is that she speaks to the fact that Italy has never really reckoned with its fascist past in the same way that Germany mm. has. Her argument and her supporters' arguments are that she's not a fascist because she believes in democracy. Mm. And that's true. She's not trying to pull the system apart in Italy. 
Mm. Clearly members of her party have said things, think things, do things, talk about things policy-wise. She certainly is conservative. She talks about family values. She's anti-immigration on many levels. All of the things that you might expect. Mm. Is she a fascist? I I think as leader of Italy, it's hard to see how she quite fits into that description. All right, let's move on to the other world leaders. Just for a final question, you're obviously looking at the big players, as I mentioned before, Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping. Which leader do you think is going to impact our lives here in Australia the most this year? I think Xi Jinping is the person that hangs over our domestic politics almost constantly because it is in our region because of the economic ties, because of the way he's trying to consolidate power in China, it seems quite successfully, and because of the fact that they are now starting to open up post-COVID, I think what happens economically in China is always going to have the biggest impact on, on our lives. You know, if you're a lobster producer in a coastal part of Australia, if you're a winemaker, if you're selling something in Melbourne or Sydney the implications of the trade sanctions between Australia and China Mm. will have an immediate hit. It doesn't dismiss the Russia stuff Mm. because, of course, gas prices is something that we're we're all impacted by as well. But I think she is probably the one that impacts us. That was Hamish McDonald. You can check out his podcast. It's called Take Me To Your Leader. And episode two comes out today. Listener.